0: I'm sitting here at my friend Sandra and Luciano's house in Diemen, Holland. It's just outside of Amsterdam. And I'm in the middle of a two week tour of Europe. It started out pretty great. My taxi driver in Amsterdam said that he'd just recently immigrated from Iran. And I said, man, there just has to be a lot of new things that you're just discovering about the world. And he said that he'd fallen in love with the music of Chet Atkins and his guitar playing and said that he just loves sitting back and listening to it. And I thought that was beautiful and timely. I couldn't help but think of how wonderful music is and how it bridges so many gaps and cultures. I took a train from Amsterdam to my first gig in Middleburg and I was the only person sitting on my train car and they kept making these announcements every now and then in Dutch, but I don't speak Dutch, so I didn't really pay much attention to it. And we pulled into Rosalind station and they made an announcement over the intercom in Dutch. And after just a little bit, we pulled out of the station really slow. And after about 30 seconds or a minute, we stopped. And I sat there for a while and we stayed stopped. And I started getting suspicious and I wondered what was going on. So I got out of my seat. I walked all the way from one end of the train to the other. And I was the only person on the train I quickly realized that the announcement was saying that they were gonna ditch the back five cars of the train when they got to the station and everybody should get out. So I was stranded in this train cars that were pulled over into a parking area just where they set excess cars. And I tried to get out, the doors wouldn't open. I pulled the emergency lever seeing if I could get anybody's attention. But since the train was powered down, It didn't do anything at all. And I was looking just for writing, you know, there's little notices pinned up in different places and I was just looking for a phone number to call. And I found a number that said SOS next to it. So I called and it was the railroad police. I told them what was going on and they asked me the number of the train. I found it and gave it to them and said they would be there shortly. So I started waiting and waiting and I'm looking at my clock And I ended up waiting for over an hour after I called them. And at one point, I'm looking at uh, at the clock there. And I realized that I have to be on stage in Middleburg in two hours. And I'm one hour from Middleburg right then. And I started worrying. But finally, the policeman shows up, the railroad police, and he let me out. And he was a very nice man. And he was laughing about the whole thing. I said, "Well, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed by this. But is does this sort of thing happen very often? You know, am I the only person that ever did this?" He says, "Eh, it happens from time to time, but it seems like it's always Americans." <laughs> This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here at my friend Sandra and Luciano's house in Demon Holland. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Knowles. John's a great guitar player. He's an author and a teacher, and he's a member of the National Thumb Pickers Hall of Fame. And you can find out everything you need to know about John at johnknowles.com. I first met John about a year ago when we were both stranded in Chicago In midway airport and we were desperately trying to get home late at night back to nashville our flights had been cancelled he saw my guitar case and he started up a conversation and i knew exactly who he was before he started talking to me so i was very happy when he said hello he's just a very nice man very knowledgeable man i waited about a year to try to get the nerve up to ask him if he would come on and tell some stories about chet atkins his close friends with chet John was nice enough to invite me over to a clubhouse near his home. This was a big open room, so there's some reverb in the background from the room, and I apologize ahead of time, but I don't think it's too distracting. But John was extremely generous with his time and his stories, and he even told quite a few really great Jerry Reed stories that we're going to turn into a future episode. But for now, here's John Knowles.
1: You know, when I was uh, a kid, I grew up in, uh, my dad and my granddad both preachers, and so I always heard organ music and church choirs, and and I had uncles who were into jazz and classical, and so I, I heard music my whole life, and when I was about six or seven, I took accordion lessons, so I knew kind of how to make music, and then I bought myself a plastic ukulele, and then I heard Chet, and I realized I needed those other two strings. And, and, I, and I always felt like I met him twice. I felt like the first time I met him was his recordings uh, because they were so uh, specific. Uh, you could listen to what he was doing and you just kind of disappeared into the sound. Uh, I remember trying to play along with the recordings. And to me, I thought I was playing with Chet. I didn't feel like I was playing with a record, you know, but his, his presence was so real to me. And I've talked to other guitar players who have said that same thing about those records. So by the time we met, it's a significant number of years later. And uh, I realized within 30 or 40 minutes that he was the guy on those records, that he had really, you know, put his personality in the grooves. Uh, I met him uh, at a concert in Dallas. Uh, He was playing with the Dallas Symphony. And I knew to kind of go to the rehearsal rather than the show because, you know, more chance that he'd be sitting around doing nothing. And, uh, and sure enough, you know, he he was sitting around doing nothing. And we talked a little bit and realized we knew uh, people in common. And I remember he said, you know, I think Rick Foster told me about you. Uh, he said, didn't you do? And he picked up the guitar and started playing some of my music. And I thought, whoa, what is going on here, you know? And later on, I found out that, uh, that he really had his ear to the ground all the time about guitar players. And later I would tell him, you know, if you're in Cleveland, go see so-and-so. So So we all did that, you know, to kind of keep him uh, up-to-date about his passion, which was guitar players and music and the guitar. And, you know, he was a serious guitar nut, I would say. And, of course, at the moment, I just thought, holy smoke, this is my hero, and he knows my work, you know. And and afterwards, I remember walking out. I was with a friend, and he says, you played for the man, because he had handed me a guitar to get me to play something. I said no. He said no. That was you, and that was him. You played for Chet Atkins, and I said, "Well, I guess I did, but it didn't seem like that. It just felt like we were passing the guitar back and forth." And again, I found out later how good he was at uh, disarming of the musicians, because he got to a point where his uh, his legend and his legacy was huge, but he wasn't through working yet. You know, so he could not afford to freak everybody out. He would. He told me other stories later about how he had freaked people. He told me about the first time that Roger Miller played for him and just, just shook the whole time, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. And, and all those people that we think of as being so comfortable, you know, in a performance setting, but uh, freaking out in Chet's office. I never freaked out around him. I, I don't know. I, I should have. I just didn't. Really. Well, what had happened is... Um, I worked at Texas Instruments for a couple of years. I went to school and they wouldn't let me study guitar because uh, guitar just was not a real instrument. So I studied physics and mathematics and went and got that job at Texas Instruments. And when our son was born, Jay, like every good parent, decided to quit my job, you know, as a way to, I, in order to be a good dad, you know, because I felt like being a good dad meant being real, not necessarily, you know, providing. Uh, and uh, neither Becky nor I ever seemed to worry too much about biscuits on the table. You know it just I just think we grew up in a comfortable enough setting, not not rich or anything, but you know comfortable, and so that we kind of always just thought food would be there and uh, So there was not a lot of fear associated with that move. Um, and I had worked my way into a position uh, teaching at a community college. With my physics degree, they let me in the music department, you know, for some reason. I think they were happy to have a PhD at a community college is what it was. Forget the subject matter, you know. And I, I remember that day I played uh, a little bit of the entertainer uh, that thing from the motion picture of the Sting, the Joplin piece uh, for Chet. And he said, finish that up and send it to me. And so I did. And uh, he recorded it, and it, uh, it won a Grammy for Country Instrumental of the Year. And of course, now I'm on the phone to him, and I'm saying, "Did this like really happen? Because I didn't know it was a nominated." I'm sitting at, at my friend's house watching the show, and it's in the scroll, you know, <laughs> that, that it had won. And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, you think if I came to Nashville, that I could find something to do?" And he said, "Well, what are you doing in Dallas?" And so I told him, and he said, well, "You could do most of that in Nashville, and we could find something else." So, but talk it over with your wife, because you know, don't make this decision lightly. He didn't want to like try to talk me into anything, but he was definitely saying, it's an open door. And uh, and so I came, 76, and I did that stuff that everybody does when they come to town. Lead sheets and demo sessions and teaching. And really early on, I started to work on another book with Chet, How to Play Like, you know, and then where I was at Blair School of Music, about four doors down, was Jerry Reed's office. And so I could go by there and hang out with Jerry and I learned how to play some of his stuff and uh and wrote a book how to play like that. And pretty soon I was really in a position where I was kind of the I don't know, the legacy branch of Chet's Enterprise. You know, I was the guy who was the librarian, the archivist, don't you know, writing everything down and so naturally the workshops come out of that. And so and then we Chet and I would also do some um some writing together and arranging. I'd go by his office. He'd show me what he was working on. I'd show him what I was working on. Those were the best times was to sit down and exchange ideas with him uh, because he was, he always, he was very clear about what he was doing. He saw you do something he hadn't done before. He wanted to see what it was. And so he had to teach him on the spot. And then I love the way he could always, uh, steal a lick from me. And then, about a week later it, it sounded like he made it up <laughs> he had he had such a voice you know on the guitar that it, it never felt like he was stealing my stuff at all you know but we were we were stealing back and forth and every now and then he would even introduce me as his teacher you know and i thought wait a minute it's the other way around and then i thought no it didn't it's we're it's a it's a back and forth sharing learning thing you know i gotta tell you you know a dream come true i mean if I, if I think about you know being that kid listening to those records. And then being in the room with uh, I don't see the dotted line that gets me there. I still don't. Uh, I know I did the work, uh, but somewhere in there, circumstances allow things to happen. You can always say that you did your work, but there also has to be a certain gratitude that, you know, whatever, the universe was willing to, like, uh, pause for a moment and accommodate you. And that's how I feel. <laughs> And this was probably about 73 or four. Uh, he had just had that first uh, colon cancer surgery. So all the time I knew him, he was a cancer survivor, which is a funny way to think of it, you know, because it went on for another 30 years. And, uh, but he was tough like that, too. I remember he was sick another time, and we were all worried about him. And... Uh, and Jerry Reed says, well, he is Chad Atkins, you know. <laughs> 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 kind of like that conferred bulletproof status on him, you know. He did not feel bullet, bulletproof, but we all felt that way about him because he just seemed uh, like he was uh, made in marble for the ages, you know, because of, of who he was. he was. He was very easygoing, real straightforward, but you was like being in the room with Abe Lincoln. <laughs> you know, sort of. <laughs> this is the thing i would be around chet and whenever i was around him it would feel like he spent his whole day with me even if it was just an hour and then i would look around and i realized he did 10 other things that day so he might have gone down there and played and i would have never known it he just wouldn't have made a deal out of it you know but occasionally i would go uh places uh you know out to uh the the opera land complex for the television shows and he kind of hated to go to those things alone uh, partly because he would get bored, and also, if if somebody came up, he didn't want to talk to him. He could always be talking to me, so I was like security, you know. I was the bodyguard, <laughs> and that was always fun. And then we, we would take the guitars, and we would sit there and play, you know. So anytime he said, "I'm going to go out and do a TV show," you want to come with me? I would always say, "Oh yeah." It was uh, some amazing times, you know. You'd you'd meet other people, and that was fun. And being with Chet—that's the other thing I realized. He took me with him everywhere, which was his way of saying, this is John Knowles. You know, and it was just, without making a big commotion about it, just being with him uh, immediately removed a lot of the the sawhorses from the road. You know, it was an open highway at that point. I always felt like um, he did more for me than I was ever able to take advantage of. Uh, Because anything that he thought I might be able to do, he would look for a way Let's see if I could. He got me to sing uh, backup vocals one time on a record. We had written this tune, a Christmas tune called "East Tennessee Christmas," and, uh, and I think he had Bergen White singing on it. And he had me come over and sing. And if I'm there, I'm, I'm pretty down in the mix. And he didn't ever. And he didn't ever call again. But you know, he knew I could sing on pitch. What What he found out is that I'm not good at tracking what somebody else is singing. I sing, I stand out from the chorus. You know. I'm not that I'm not a good background singer at all. So he recorded me as a soloist and I think what I was seeing was how a lot of his early records were made. And it was still on tape and it was pre-digital. So the razor blade is how you edit. And he showed me how to rock the tape back and forth and find the beginning of a note and then find that same note later on and make those diagonal cuts and then, you know, Uh, put the tape together with tape and then listen to see if you got it right. He told me to always save the other piece of tape over there on the wall, (laughs) you know, in case you were wrong and you had to undo your edit. There was not an undo button. The undo was more tape, (laughs) more sticky tape, you know. Uh, But in the process, I, what I learned was how he was listening to the recorded sound on tape in such microscopic detail. And one day after we had done that on one of uh, my tracks, he said, um, he said, you know, he said, I owe my early success to a thumb pick and a razor blade. <laughs> that a great line. He was like that all the time. Everything he said was like somebody wrote it for him. You know? <laughs> he uh, was uh, outrageously curious about everything. Uh, he uh, did not graduate high school, but he read postdoctorate. I mean, it, it, history books... Love Mark Twain. Could quote Mark Twain. You know, every now and then he would hand me a Mark Twain book with a post-it note in it, say, "If you read this story, you know, you'll like this." Uh, he asked me questions all the time about physics. He asked me questions about quantum mechanics. That's it's really hard to explain quantum mechanics even to another scientist, you know. But it's really hard to explain it to somebody, you know. And relativity, he wanted to know all about that, you know. So, yeah, he was he was really. And he was—he liked being surrounded by people who were curious, and uh, and wanted to know things. Uh, when you would go, uh, you know, late in his life, a bunch of us would meet him over at the Cracker Barrel for breakfast on Saturdays. And around that table, there would be the most interesting assortment of people, and they wouldn't all be music people. And I remember meeting uh, somebody from Goodyear Tires there one time, and somebody else who was the Louisville Slugger Bat CEO, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, and. And we would talk around the table. It might be about Nikolai Tesla one day, and Edison the next. And you know, in addition to all the music business stories you know,
0: that went, I'd heard that when Paul McCartney and Wings were in town in '73, mm-hmm. that they met with Chet. Did he ever talk about that? Or?
1: Uh, oh yeah. Uh, and matter of fact, there was uh, there was several things about that. There was still a uh, a Polaroid on the refrigerator at his house. And so Paul had been by the house because there was a picture of Paul and Leona on the fridge. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then uh, and there was another occasion when uh, when I was being Chet's bodyguard at a, at a trade show, and Yamaha was going to give uh, some awards uh, to a bunch of different musicians. you know they, they did I think it was little Richard and Brian Wilson, and it was an interesting group, you know, and Chet, and one of them was George Martin. So anyhow, Chet had asked me to go along so he could be in a crowd without, you know, running out of people to talk to. And, and we got sat at the table with George Martin. And so they talked. <laughs> you know, that was another one of those fly-on-the-wall moments where they just compared notes and and talked about stuff. And uh, so they, all, all the Beatles knew who Chet was, you know, George Harrison knew. And he well, was at a, at a big dinner, you know, one of those things. where, the, And Chet, so funny, here they're honoring him with all these people and, Seth leans over to me and says, You know, they're just doing this. He said, Because they can't use my name because I I'm, I'm an endorser for all the other companies. But if they give me an award, they could use my name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he knew how it worked. <laughs> yeah. He
1: knew how it worked. And he thought he never thought, maybe it's just because I'm famous or wonderful. He never, he just didn't think that way. He he knew he'd accomplished a lot. He knew he'd set out, you know, to do this and he did it. But it it didn't occur to him moment to moment that that was worthy of any special adulation. He wanted to be respected, and he wanted the respect of his peers. You know, but uh, if you made over him too much, he would get uncomfortable. He would say, "Well, I got to make a phone call." You know, he signed uh, Charlie Pride uh, before I came to town. Uh, but uh, I remember him just referring to it. And then I talked to Charlie about it a couple of times when I worked at the Hall of Fame. And uh, Charlie always was deeply grateful to Chet for taking that chance. And what they did was they put the record out there and said nothing, put no picture of him, just put the single out, and it climbed the charts. And then once he was a success, that's when he told everybody that uh, Charlie was African-American. You know. Was that Chet's idea to not put the picture out? I, I would guess that it was, just knowing. Uh, the thing I heard him say over and over and over is that uh, his, he really trusted his ears. Uh, his uh, batting average was good. By then, he'd had enough successes that he wasn't afraid to not have one. So I think he was just totally willing to go on the sound of the record. And he knew that was the experience that most people were going to have. That was still when radio was dominant, you know, before music videos and so forth. He may have sat down and talked uh, about somebody with somebody about that. You know, I I don't know. I saw him on other occasions. Well, he he would do it all the time. You'd come into the office and he would play tracks for you and get a read, you know, from people that were around him. So he trusted his ears, but he wasn't beyond trying something out on several people and then, if nobody liked it, kind of backing up and punting, you know. So he would do that, but. But he really trusted his instinct a lot. And I think probably just knowing him, he went on instinct. And, uh, and the subterfuge, he might have discussed with somebody and he might not have. Uh, I, I do remember uh, Waylon coming by the office one day. most striking thing about it was how easy they are with each, with, with each other. Because I think Chet was the one that really found him. Somebody uh, sent Chet a tape when Waylon was out in Arizona somewhere. And a photograph. And Chet said, he said, you know, I looked at that photo and I thought, I have found me a star. You know, and uh, so they they did some work together. But by the time I met him, this was after the outlaw thing had happened, you know, and uh, they were just catching up. And what I re- remember was Chet saying something about uh, how are things going. And uh, and one of the things that Waylon said was he said, he said, well, I'm getting a little tired of this outlaw shit. <laughs> and, he, and, and he said, because, you know, and then he realized that that was a shtick, you know. It was a, a promotional stick. And as a matter of fact, by, shortly after that, I realized that his son was in school with our kids, a little younger, you know, but so he was in the hookup line from time to time. And so he was like a really normal guy in a lot of ways. He was complaining because it'd been too long since he had been at the dentist and, you know, like we all do, you know. And he was looking forward to having to sit in a chair. <laughs> 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 Mr. Tough Outlaw <laughs> <laughs> couldn't face down a dentist, you know. But I, I think I think almost everybody who was around Chet, uh, they were at their most uh, relaxed and unpretentious. You know, they were they were off duty around him. Uh, I remember the same thing. I was around Dolly Parton several times when she was around him, and she was just 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 great. I'm just, I just loved her, you know. Just as well, course she's kind of normal anyhow, in a funny sort of way. In an extraordinary way, but she was always just real straight ahead, you know. Around him, there was an, another occasion when it was some kind of a BMI thing, and she spotted me across the room and remembered that she'd met me in Chet's office. So she just came over and stood by me, you know. Like, I was again, like, you know, I'm a bodyguard again, you know, just somebody to kind of be with, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I think there was that's that thing again too about being around Chet. It immediately certified you as a a safe authentic person in this town you know not somebody to to worry about you know you know what i mean it's that that whole Nashville thing you know
0: yeah you're always trying to to we all want to fit in you know and it ain't
1: trivial (laughs) 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 it's easy to feel like leftovers in this town you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) likes to remind you of your worth whether that's good or bad that's right
1: Yes, yes, and as a matter of fact, the the name of the looper was Jam Man, and uh, so he sat down right away and wrote a tune that had this basic little riff, and he would use that on stage to close his shows, and he would play that little A minor riff, and then hit the pedal, and then add to it, and add to it, and add to it, then he would put the guitar down and walk off, and leave the, the looper going, before everybody knew what a looper was, you know, and he would come back out and take a bow, and Play a few more notes and then put it back down and walk off. He loved it because it was a way to milk the audience. I and mean, what's going on here, you know? And I'll tell you what that tune is. It's a tune called Jam Man after the box, and uh, it's the insurance commercial that you hear out there nowadays. That's what that is. He wrote that for the looper, and and uh, when he would when he recorded it, he recorded it a little bit like a looper, but he also kind of wrote a bridge because it made the record just a little more interesting but when he would play it live it was uh, strictly a looper tune
0: it says a lot for him to to be still embracing new technology when when i see the clip of him playing the black and white clip on youtube of him playing mr sandman i think that's as perfect as anything can get yeah but yet he's still moving on moving on you know one of my favorite uh
1: recollections is uh lunch with uh chet and owen bradley and Owen had just gotten uh, the Elise's ADAT. And he had two of them, and he was waiting for the box that would make them sync up and work together. He was frustrated because it was back-ordered, you know. <laughs> and they're talking about all this. And nobody was recording digital yet, but these two guys were having this whole lunch conversation, not about the old days, and not, not about wasn't it great when, but about how he was going to get that ADAT to work and how Chet wanted to hear the first tracks he recorded with it and you know, and then you realize these two guys—the reason they're pioneers is because they're they're pioneers.
0: You don't stop being a pioneer if you are one. You know, these are the two guys that you know yeah. made the soundtrack of Nashville. Oh yeah, to you know, through the '60s and '70s, and, and here they are, perfectly
1: willing to walk on and take the next
0: steps. You know,
1: and within a few years, everybody in Nashville was doing some kind of digital thing, and so the ADAT was really kind of like the home studio thing, but it was the first place. I imagine these two guys were talking about it for the first time. And eventually, Chet ends up, you know, still with a two-inch tape, but with uh, uh, a couple of uh, like the Sony DAT recorders uh, in the studio, the uh, real, real, real high-quality ones, you know. And so he's recording some stuff directed to two tracks, but also he's mixing on the two. But he was, to the end, he was still kind of a tape guy. Oh yeah, he he was really into the technology, and uh, he worked with uh, engineers that knew their stuff. And he always was asking the engineers questions. Uh, when he found out that I knew that physics stuff, he was asking me questions all the time, you know. But I remember uh, he uh, first time he recorded me on nylon string, he said, "I'm going to face you towards this this bookcase over here. This it that was full of books. It's a good place to sit for the classical, you know." And And he brings the Neumann KM84. And he said, I'm just going to put one mic on you. He said, but we're going to use two reverb plates. This is still all pre-digital. And he said, because the guitar is mono, but the room is stereo. Now, that's a very shrewd observation, especially when you go in today and everybody wants to put five mics on a guitar, you know. And he said, one mic, and, and then the reverb let the room have the space in it, you know. And the guitar, the microphone, I kind of was able to reach out from the twelfth fret and just touch where the microphone was. So, however far that is, you know, twelve, fourteen inches. And he said, for a classic guitar, that's the spot, you know, because you'll get, you know, you get both hands, you get the wood, and you get away from the hole, which is where a lot of the woop 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 is. And it was a condenser mic, with a small diaphragm, so it had a quick, accurate response. And then what he had me do was Listened to the headphones and he actually ran everything through the reverb plates and then I listened to exactly what the record was going to sound like you know and as a matter of fact that's what went the tape so the, the mixing process was the recording process for the simples to set up like that you, know.
0: you could actually work the reverb I, I knew yeah,
1: I could listen to and the reverb it tends to affect uh, things like how long you let a note ring you don't, it affects tempo because if you play too fast, you note know, gets muddy and you play it just like you would like a room. The other thing I remember him telling me before I did that that first time was he said, uh, he said, if you've got a microphone and some headphones at home, do this and listen to yourself because you'll be freaked out when you hear what the microphone hears. You won't be happy. And he said, uh, and but you'll, you'll adjust to it and you'll clean up your touch and you won't squeak and you won't go scrapey-scrapey on the strings. And he said, and "If you don't have a microphone, he said, just go in the bathroom and face the wall." And actually, that's what I did. <laughs> <And it's laughs> same effect—you get you get right back in your face. All this stuff that you thought was delicious is, in fact, uh, quite messy, you know. And so you clean up your act. Um, and I think that's—I think any good musician does that. You you need some feedback system where you have an expectation, you hear what's happening, you make an adjustment. And it's a loop like that, you know, where you keep uh, doing that. And it doesn't matter whether you're a violinist or, or whatever, you know. If you you do that same thing. Either that or you don't sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> and you're depending on the engineer to fix it, you know. I'm going to guess those were EMT plates, the reverb? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were the, the plates for the uh, those EMT plates. He had a couple of them that I think had been at Studio B at one point. And he had several things like that that had been a part of Studio B for a while. He had a board from there, which he replaced it with a different board. He had um, a couple of those old RCA mics, the ribbon mics, like we used to see on the Johnny Carson show. Those, those, and he especially liked those for uh, steel string acoustic. Uh, they didn't have a real, a real shiny top end, and so you could get a, a nice sweep. Every now and then he would, for acoustic, he had an old Martin that he had tape over the where it said Martin, you know, because he wasn't a, a Martin sponsor you know so but he would play with with he'd use that mic you know i remember uh, tom Bresh told me one time that he borrowed that mic from chet chet says borrow this mic because you're going to record and he says he says but you got to know what happens to you if you don't bring it back <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that martin um i interviewed melanie howard i had her mm-hmm. on the show harlan howard's with, yes uh, i bet it is that one yeah and she said that he borrowed that because he didn't have a d28 yeah that would be the same one I'm, I'm almost certain it would be because I remember him saying something uh, about
1: Harlan uh, feeling like most of the songs had been written out of it, so it was okay to loan it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've heard songwriters say that right, you yeah. know, <laughs> and I know what that is because you you do depend on the guitar itself or the keyboard, whatever you're doing to kind of create you know the world that where your songs live, and after a while. Uh, it's not exciting. It's lost its edge, and and you want a new, something new. I think we all do that, for, which we're guitar nuts. It, you get a new guitar, and it immediately
0: excites your ears and gets your
1: imagination going.
0: Well What were the guitars that that Chet would have laying around that he would go to <laughs> immediately? I think he had
1: a, a little room, kind of in the basement. There, it probably had I don't know thirty or forty instruments in it, uh, and there was everything: arch tops and steel strings and classicals and he had a um, he had the Gretsch that we all know the one that's the, the country gentleman you know that that he actually got from the factory up in, in Brooklyn but it also had a lot of holes drilled in it and he, he said I know you're not an electric player he said but here and he handed me that guitar and I played it and boy it played like a dream. Every every time you pick up one of his guitars, they were exceptionally well adjusted. The action wasn't low but it was very even, so it felt the same down at the nut as it did as you approached, you know, the twelfth fret, because the string gets a little looser up there, so it can afford to be a little higher and still feel good everywhere, you know. And of course, a lot of that was uh he felt like he could, you know, actually dig in with his right hand. Mm-hmm. it comes from playing acoustic before he played electric, too, to have a higher action. But also his vibrato was uh So unique, you know. It it included a a kind of a circular motion with his fingertip, but also kind of back and forth like a violinist would do. Then he could also bend the strings like a rock and roller would. He just anything you could do to kind of nurture the sound like that, you know, he
0: would do it. Did he set those guitars up himself? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Chet had a, a workbench where he did all kind of work on his guitars and he had two or three people that were, that did really good work if it came to like re and some things like that. Uh, but he wasn't afraid to file on the nut and rearrange the bridge a little bit and try different strings. He was always going through stuff like that. And I remember when uh, the receptionist at Chet's office started answering the phone, CGP Enterprises, and uh, we were all asking, Chad, what's CGP? Oh, I don't know. It could be something. <laughs> you know. I thought, come on. So finally he said, and then he started using it with his name, you know. So we started guessing. A bunch of us started guessing. Somebody guessed certified guitar player. And he said, that could be it. And then later he said, that's better than what I was thinking. I, mean, I was thinking country guitar picker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like a way to have, and, and a lot of it is too, it was something for him. Uh, he had such a long career and as soon as he's trying to shift gears and and reach new audiences he can't be Chet Atkins the Country Gentleman or Mr. Guitar that's a that's a from a different decade you know so the CGP thing is like got a little more mystery to it you know and it, it, it moved him on And I think if I look back at where he was Chester Atkins in his Gallifin guitar he was the Country Gentleman he was Mr. Guitar well, for a long time, well, Chester became Chet at some point, you know. So There's all those little changes in uh, designation as he would reach out uh, at new stages in his career. So that was a lot of what it was. And then uh, he decided to use it, I think he and Paul Yandel kind of worked this out, to use it as a like an award thing. And the first one he gave was to uh, Jerry Reed, and it was a, like a little statue, a little marble statue, and then about a couple of years later, he gave me one, and mine was a, like, it looks like a diploma, whereas John Knowles, you know. And what's really funny is to get down there, therefore I give you the first one, you know. So mine was the first one, too. <laughs> you know, so he wasn't keeping score at all. And then uh, Steve Warner looked like a gold record. They had both been in competition for a Grammy, and uh, Chet won it. So he, you know, you can't give a Grammy away. The, the Grammy people won't let you. So he got a plaque. It says, on permanent loan to Steve Warner. And then and, and gave that to Steve. I loaned it to Steve, you know. And then came up with a thing that looked like a gold record, but it's the CGP. It's got the little thing that says, you know, that Chet's doing that. And uh, I remember mine said, uh, therefore by the power I have vested in myself. <laughs> 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 Always, <laughs> tongue in cheek, you know. Uh, and then uh, about a year after that was uh, Tommy Emmanuel, And Tommy Emanuel's is a, like, again, it looks like a little Washington monument out of some kind of marble, and, uh, you know, for a lifetime, contributions, sort of a thing. So if you look at them all side by side, it's like, so what is this thing, you know? And I think, I, I felt like at the time it was uh, some combination of recognition and affection, you know? Uh, we were just his pals. And, uh, and then after Chet's death, his family... Gave one to Paul Yandel, who had been right alongside Chet the whole time. And they decided that was the last one, so that's that's a small thing. There it is. Yeah, I I was working at the Country Music Hall of Fame when uh, I got the phone call that he had died. And and so the first thing I thought, it was a weekend, and I thought I better get down there because the media's going to start calling. And, and there's any number of people who could have taken those calls, but I knew him, you know? And so I shaved and put on a tie and went down to the hall of fame and, and all the calls that came to the hall of fame were the ones that, that wanted the, the typical written biography. And so I don't think I have ever maybe I talked to one or two people, but that was about it. But it, I was glad that I could put on a tie and shave and go somewhere because I did not want to deal with that, even though I knew it was imminent. Uh, all of a sudden the reality of it was way different than the the imminence of it
0: do you remember the last time you saw him uh um, yeah i do uh over
1: at his house and uh he was asking me about my uh i played some i played happy again for him as one of his tunes he liked to hear me play and uh and he, and he says let me see your fingernails and he looked at my fingernails and he said so how come you got the good fingernails and i didn't because mine are real you know, he could just about knock on the door with mine. You know, his were always real fragile, and he was breaking them a lot. How come you got the good thing? Who does your nails? <laughs> you know, so that that constant teasing back and forth—that I realized he didn't do that with with everybody because he never knew how somebody was going to take. You know, Chet Atkins teasing you. You know, but he and I just from the get-go uh, had a had a comfortableness about us. You know? I can't believe I stumbled into it in some ways, and yet once it was there, it felt totally automatic. I remember the first time I recorded something at his house um, and we had written a tune together and he wanted me to overdub something. So we did it and we're headed to lunch and I'd been in town, I don't know, a couple couple of months maybe. And uh, he said, well, have you done much work like this? And I said, no, I said, it's the first time. He said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I was waiting to start at the top. <laughs> you know, and I thought, wait a minute. But that's how I felt around him. Like, I could say that, you know. He just thought that was so funny, you know. <laughs> he just said nobody else had asked yet. <laughs> I didn't know anybody else. <laughs> so that, that kind of uh, that ease, you know. And, and he, uh, you know, near the end of his life, he, he realized that he was losing ground. He, he just shifted gears. He was still the guy. Uh, he knew that guitar playing in public was not going to be a part of it. He, uh, But he still would hold a guitar and play for himself. And then he got to where he didn't do that. And one of the things he told me was he, uh, he at one point, he uh, fell and uh, hurt his hip. And so he said that meant no golf. And he said, he said, I was always thinking when I couldn't play the guitar anymore, I would be a golfer, you know. And all of a sudden, I can't do that either, you know. But he laughed about it, you know. It's, and I mean, I can't imagine what... Well, none of us can imagine what it's like to be somebody else, especially somebody as complicated as Chet. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, those of us who were around him did feel like we knew him, but tip of the iceberg. A very complicated, deep, one-of-a-kind person. I really feel like knowing him was... Uh, if you pick any, anybody that would pick out a handful of people in history... He's like one of them. You know, just about I said to Abe Lincoln earlier, you know, Thomas Edison, you know, name them, you know, people that are just their own person who, who leave a mark that is indelible.
0: Who has shaped popular American music more than Chet Atkins?
1: You know, that's a thing that I don't think people realize is that you can't imagine the whole 20th century, you know, of popular music without him. You just, you, If you take him out, Who's not there is astonishing. The songs that don't get recorded, the artists that don't get produced. It's just enormous. A vacuum that you couldn't calculate. But you know, as I say that, I realize, yeah, that's true. You know, but on the other hand, he was like a really regular guy who was just one of the most intense and the best guitar player I ever saw You know, just across the board. And a pal. What a
0: deal. I appreciate you inviting me over here. It's beautiful to get to chat with you <laughs> and hear the stories. My pleasure. Well, you know,
1: thanks for asking. Thanks for asking, you know. Uh, I think it's uh, must be a fate and operation that you and I would have met at that airport. That day and, and both men uh, screwed over with our schedules and had enough time to, to strike up a conversation that said,
0: maybe there's something going on here. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank John for inviting me over to that clubhouse in Nashville and sharing those stories you can find out everything you need to know about John at Johnnoles.com. if you'd like to help support this show just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt you can download any record I've ever made you can buy one of my photographic prints you can buy one of Amy's records you can buy one of Amy's children's books But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.